0: Just uh, jumping on for my weekly Sunday morning live. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be doing these. Because um, <clears throat> uh, things are going to be slowing down for me in a few weeks. And so I'm going to be looking at doing some, producing some other content in other formats. Possibly um, going back to live services on Sunday morning in our building. Um <clears throat> So let's to consider there. How long would to be? Uh, and I just kind of picked a topic to just kind of wing and talk off the top of my head. Maybe pick up on what we did, um, talked about last week with Easter and Jesus. <clears throat> but I want to look at uh, a couple principles of just uh, from the Kabbalion. I'll explain what that is in a minute. Uh, the Hermetic principles and uh, I don't know talk about kind of an interesting subject as it relates to spirituality and Christ in the left-hand path so anyway <laughs> bear with me I'm kind of still finding my bearings and again I'm waiting just a few minutes so how'd you guys like uh well I from the comments I, I know you know it seemed to be well received but what we talked about last week with the um with the left-hand path and the right-hand path, does, does that make <clears throat> that makes some sense to you if you saw it? Now, I want to be careful using the term "left-hand path" because, um, in our culture, it mostly gets lumped in with uh, a lot of Satanism, and uh, which you know makes sense that it would. But the concepts did not originate with Anton LaVey or Michael W. Ford or Whatever satanic authors are out there, concept of the left-hand path, like I talked about last week, goes back to Sanskrit, which is considered to be the oldest language, older than Hebrew. Hate to break it to the Jews and the Christians, but you know God probably didn't create the world with Hebrew letters and the Hebrew language. um... But anyway, in Sanskrit, there's this idea of the right-hand path, which is a path of devotion sacrifice and giving yourself dedication to a to a deity or to god and then what they called the left-hand path and the left-hand path was considered the awakened path if if you were on the left-hand path you were considered to be awakened and by awakened what it meant was that you were not one of the sheep <laughs> that you were not one of the sheep that you weren't just going along with the herd that you weren't just following along but that you became awakened to and i would say for our purposes today to your own unique brand of self right so the left-hand path then is seen as going in opposition obviously to the right-hand path because the left-hand path rather than being a dedication and a giving over of oneself to something outside yourself or to a god outside yourself, or to a deity outside yourself, through dedication and surrender and submission and giving up your will and giving up your mind and giving up, you know, all of that, to fit in with the herd. The left-hand path was the path of self-actualization. It was the path of realizing your own um, <laughs> divine nature, your own deity within you. And waking it up and then maximizing that self <clears throat> maximizing that self so that's the idea of the left-hand path so I want to I want to kind of tease that out and play with that today and I, I really am the more I, I look at this the more I meditate the more I grow the more I have experiences both just in life and supernatural experiences that I hardly ever talk about uh, <laughs> and the more I learn and grow in this stuff and the more, the, the further down the road that I get, um, <clears throat> the more I'm convinced that the world really is upside down, that things are the opposite of what we've thought. And so I'm going to talk about, uh, just a couple principles from the Kabbalion and I'm going to talk about your demon state, your demon state. <laughs> Uh, we'll get into that stuff in a minute. But in the Kabbalion, the very opening phrase, and if you don't know what the Kabbalion is, it's uh, it's a treatise on hermetic wisdom, uh, which is considered to have originated in Egypt and then taught basically to the Greeks by the Egyptians in Alexandria and then passed down. So it's what's called hermetic wisdom. It uh focuses on the teachings of Hermes Trismegistus or Hermes the Trice Great or the Three Times Great or the Three Times uh, Magnificent, but it's believed to be traced back. And, and I think it's reasonable scholarship to say that it can be traced back to Egypt and the teachings of Thoth who uh, taught human beings about reality and about the divine and about God and about life after death and stuff like this. So this is something that completely predates uh, the ideas in the Kabbalion, completely predates Christianity and Judaism. It's an older philosophy and ideas. Um, and so it's, it's a really good read. It's an easy read. It's written by the three initiates. Um. I think I know who at least two of those initiates are because I've read their other stuff and it reads the same. <laughs> but anyway, they wanted to remain anonymous. So they're, um, they called themselves the three initiates and it just lays out for you the seven basic Hermetic principles that were taught by Thoth to the Egyptians. And then anyway. You got it so it opens with this phrase the all is mind the all is mind the all is mind the universe is mental the all is mind the universe is mental so I want you to think about this and if you go back you know a few weeks ago I talked about dr. Donald Hoffman who is saying the same thing that we live in a construct of consciousness and we created our perceptions of these other um, existing units of consciousness in order to advance evolutionary-wise. And anyway, you can go back and listen to that. Shaman have been saying the same thing for centuries, that we live inside a dream, we live inside a world dream, uh, that this life that we're leading right now is a dream. Um even the Bible says in the beginning was the word, the logos. It's where we get all the ologies from the Greek word logos. So in the beginning was consciousness and consciousness created everything, right? <laughs> Lisa Dawn, I just saw your comment. At a glance, I thought you were topless, shirtless. I thought, wowza, he really is kidding me. <laughs> Yeah, that would be. Interesting. Probably be sure to land me in Facebook jail, huh? So, <laughs> that's good. I got my mind. <laughs> uh, for those of you that don't know Lisa, we, uh, we did our, uh, graduate work together. And I uh, really appreciate her. Uh, so anyway, coming back to the Kabbalion. And all is mind or the universe is mental. So I want you to think about that. What if all reality is thought? What if all reality is mind? So when you take that with Dr. Hoffman's theories, you take that with some things in quantum physics, you bring these traditions together, then at a certain level, we are all one. At a certain level, we are all one. We're all energy. Everything is energy, right? So we are participating in this sea of energy, and we are participating in this sea of consciousness, this sea of thought, this mental universe. And there are mental currents. And so one of the things that I'm getting ready to teach, I'm going to put together, and I know I say this a lot, but I'm really serious (laughs) this time. I really mean it. Uh, I am working on it and things will slow down for me in my other life, my other job here in a couple of weeks, significantly slow down for the summer. I'm fully vaccinated. Julie's fully vaccinated. More and more people are getting vaccinated. The pandemic's coming to an end. It's getting warmer. So I'm getting ready to launch some stuff. But one of the things that I've really come to realize through my own experience and spiritual working is that very little oftentimes of what I think is really coming from me or very little of the energy that I'm carrying is really me. Now, I become a receptor for that stuff in this mental universe because of things that are in me and things I gotta work out and things I gotta change. So I don't have excuses. But, it is helpful sometimes to realize this heavy energy that I'm carrying or these negative thoughts that I'm having, they're not originating from within me, from within my heart uh they're the thought currents that are around me that are molding and shaping me because i'm existing in this sea of consciousness so i want to present this idea that all is god all is divine the universe is simply the body of god and that we are one but the difference between the right hand path and the left hand path is the left hand path says that we are to maintain within this construct of consciousness and mind that we are to find and express our unique divine spark we are to fully actualize ourselves as divine human beings now i know that can sound crazy and radical to people especially if they're just coming out of religion they get really triggered um so on the one hand, what I guess what I'm trying to say is a lot of the thoughts that you're having aren't you because you're this individual point of consciousness. But on the other hand, um, you, you don't want to lose yourself in the process because if you're losing yourself in the process, if you're giving yourself up, if you're sacrificing, then you're taking this right-hand path journey and not the left-hand path journey. Um So this brings me to the idea of your inner your inner daemon. Let's call it that, your inner daemon. Now, this is really fascinating, and this is where I want to kind of talk about how maybe things are the opposite of what we think. So the word daemon, or which became demon, but I obviously need to use the term daemon to distinguish it. Um, Let me see if I pulled up the definition really fast. Give me one second here. See, this is so nice sometimes just doing this um, sort of casual live video stuff. There's not all the same pressure uh, that you get with having to preach all the time. Um, yeah, so according to the Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica, I'm just trying to give you a reference you can look at. It says demon also spelled daemon in classical Greek. Um, a supernatural power. Listen to this. In Homer, the term is used almost interchangeably with theos, which is the word for God that we use in the Bible. So in Homer, the term is used almost interchangeably with theos for a God. The distinction there is that theos emphasizes the personality of the God and demon, his activity. So in ancient Greece, you had a personal demon. You had a, you had a demon or a daemon or a demon state. And demons were not evil. They were not considered evil, malevolent creatures that were in rebellion against God and trying to torture people for all eternity. They were considered, you can see that I just read in Homer, they were considered deities or gods. And they were considered to exist in like this intermediary state between the gods in humans but they were the source of personal genius they were the source of personal genius and so w- one of the ways that we can express and talk about this manifestation of the authentic self or this manifestation of the divine self or the great work of building your temple to house the divine within to house God within is to talk about your daemon your inner demon your 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 (laughs) demonic fire, for lack of a better word. Now, I know if you're stuck in religion, you're really getting triggered. But here's how here's how this happened, right? So in the ancient world, the term, we're just dealing with the word. Remember, when it comes to linguistics, the map is not the territory. You can take a word and make it mean anything. Uh, A century ago, the word gay meant to be happy and fun and whatever. And then, because of a movie, one movie shaped, um, began to shape and contour the concept of gay and move it from happy and joyous to referencing a homosexual sexual orientation. So, same word, different meaning. The map, the linguistic map, is not the territory. We have to know what the shared meaning is. So, what I'm telling you is that in the culture and time that predates jesus and in the greco-roman culture at least in the time of jesus the word uh daemon was not associated with something evil that almost becomes a christian invention where they and this is where i'm like they turn the world upside down really beginning with the writings of Justin Martyr, everything in the spiritual world other than the Trinity and I suppose angels, but anything that was Greek, anything that was considered pagan, was outright rejected by Justin and the Christians. And the demons then were seen to be these messengers of Satan, these dark entities, these dark beings. But prior to that and prior to Christianity, that's not what they were. So I just kind of like, it's just kind of fun to break your mindset and think about the Greeks being onto this principle that you had a inner daemon, you had a uh, daemonic fire, a divine spark, a divine flame, your personal unique stamp, what makes you you, what makes you uniquely you in the midst of all of this stuff, right? And so the person who's awakened, coming back to the Sanskrit terms or ideas of the left-hand path, the person who is awakened realizes that they have an inner fire, they have a higher self, we call it now, they have an authentic self, they have a daemon, they have something inside them that's bursting forth, wanting to find expression and give expression in this world. And that it's unique for every single person. And so my, uh, and, and that's why I like this term, my daemon is my unique expression of the divine working itself out in me as an individuated point of consciousness. Your daemon is going to look totally different than mine. It's going to be the same divine fire, but it's going to find expression in a different way. Now, the reason this is helpful is because we have a tendency to think about ourselves in terms of our personality, in terms of our personal history, in terms of our roles that we play. So, for instance, I play the role of a counselor, used to play the role of a pastor, play the role of a father, play the role of a husband, play the role of a brother, play the role of a friend. And These are masks that we put on. Now, I don't mean masks in a negative sense, like we're being fake. But I'm just saying that we, these are the identities that we lose ourselves in, right? But at the end of the day, there's still this deeper self, right? And then I have all these other selves that I play to myself. I have the self that I'm disappointed in. I have the self that I'm proud of. I have the self that I'm maybe ashamed of. So in the midst of all this stuff, um... And does this make sense? In the midst of all this stuff, it's like, what are we trying to carve out? What are we trying to uh, raise up and release? And so talking about the daemon, the personal daemon, or you can call it your higher self, but I would, I would differentiate the two a little bit or the energy of that and fanning it into flame and raising it up gives us a language that then and a construct in which we can begin to think about raising and releasing that divine energy and letting that flame of that star that we are shine forth. So, oh, I was just going to say, I hope this is making sense and helpful. And I just saw um, Laura and Daryl's Carlson's comment. This is profoundly helpful. I got to listen to last week's too. Cool, thanks, because I feel a little bit like I'm just rambling, but again, I'm really sleep-deprived. Um, so, I hope, anyway, I want to try and bring value. Um, <laughs> so, that's the the, the, the daemon part of it. Now, here's the other part of it that I want to talk about today, and the Kabbalion really brings this out. That the all is mind, the universe is mental, or that the all is divine, or that we're all one in the sense that we're all an expression of the same source and source energy and the same creator. What we do then is we relate to other participants Who are also individuated points of consciousness in this mental soup that we call the universe. And the ancient people identified energies. They identified other consciousness. They were able to contact because they weren't locked into this world the same way that we are. So they were able to contact these energies, these entities, this other higher levels of consciousness, and they identified these beings as gods or as divine. Now, it's my understanding anyway that Particularly if you go back to Egypt or you look at some of these other cultures that believed in multiple gods, they're identifying multiple energies, multiple levels of consciousness. They did not necessarily devote themselves to those gods. So for example, let's say you just, you had a fertility goddess. So a person may put a deific mask, may put a name, may even build a, an idol, right? To, or an image, some, something so that they can connect at consciousness. See, this is the point. Something so they can connect at consciousness with the energy of fertility. And they may give a fertility offering asking for a blessing of fertility upon their marriage or maybe it's fertility upon their land or whatever a lot of the festivals that were done were festivals that were done around the agricultural calendar so for example let's just take one we're all familiar with if we came out of christian culture the feast day of atonement the feast day of atonement happened in the fall after the harvest was a ritual designed to secure the blessing of rain on the next season's crops. So it was there to celebrate and give thanks for the previous season blessing and secure the blessing for the next year. So if you look at ancient cultures or you look at indigenous cultures, a lot of this stuff is going on. Now, what was helpful about this idea of having a pantheon of gods, right, is that these energies, these minds, if you will, were recognized as serving in a specific area of specialty, like fertility, or like communication, or uh, magic and the sciences. So going back to Thoth, Thoth was a god that was over like enlightenment magic and science and that kind of stuff so you're giving offerings in exchange for access to that energy and to that thinking what you were not doing in a lot of cases now there are exceptions to this obviously but what you were not doing what humanity was not doing was giving them self over to the deity So in in certain rituals, maybe the shamanic leaders of the culture would allow that energy and that consciousness to indwell their body during a ceremony, during a dance or something like that, again, for the purpose of communication, for the purpose of securing blessing, as it relates to that specific area of life. So you have various different energies that you're working with. As they relate to specific areas of life, but what you were not doing is giving your entire life over to one God. You weren't even giving any of yourself over to God. You were bringing something, a gift, an exchange, right? For blessing. Now we have this idea in the Western world specifically, And I'm sure it has other manifestations other places. Give your life to God. Give your life to Jesus. (laughs) Uh, Give your mind over to God. Give your mind over to the Word of God. Give it over to a book. Don't be moved by what you feel. Uh, You know, at some point, I need to do a live just about feelings. Um, You know, squelch your passions. All that stuff. So what happened? So how did we go from working with these energies and recognizing them as humanity to this structure that we have today? And it's pretty simple to see when you lay it, when you look at, when you can just step back objectively and look at it, what happened is is that um, in, in working with these energies, this idea of monotheism, was that we created the concept of sky god, which maps perfectly to an ancient monarch. The king in the sky. The god sitting on the throne. So if you look at the monarchies, And then you look at the heavenly structures and the heavenly orders and the way we relate to God. It's pretty easy to see that they took the map of the power structures that they were dealing with or the power structures that they wanted to institute. And then drew that map onto the heavenlies, drew that map onto the invisible world. Drew that map into deity and said bow down to it. And so we still in our music and our worship, we're still using and drawing and relating to an ancient monarchy system, right? And we are the servants. We are the ones who are there to be obedient. If you are obedient, there is reward. There's even promotion. So this idea that when you go to heaven, if you served more here or you served better here, then you're going to be promoted to a different level, right? And if you didn't serve well here, so well done, good and faithful servant, that entire structure is archaic. It's, it's, it's a map of the monarchy that was drawn to explain metaphysical reality and they mirror each other and they were married to each other. Does this make sense? So you had the savior idea. Well, Caesar was considered the savior of the world because it was believed that as he established his kingdom, it brought prosperity and blessing everywhere he went. So if we wiped out the barbarians, we got rid of that horrible group and established our culture, established our ideas and our ideals, then we were bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. So the idea that here comes the king riding on a horse to save us. Here comes the king to deliver us. Here comes the kingdom to bring the power of the king into the earth. Blessings if you're obedient. Punishment if you're disobedient. There's even a, a jail house and a torture chamber. Called hell. The entire structure, the entire thing is simply a projection of the governing systems and societies of the ancient world projected into the sky. So then in reality, if it's going to be as in heaven, so on earth, if it's going to be on earth as it is in heaven, then in reality, we were much closer to heaven on earth in the ancient monarch structures than we are certainly today, especially in democratic structures, because democracy and the Declaration of Independence and our Constitution and our main tenets as Americans are left-hand path tenets. They are left-hand path ideals and principles. And in fact, a lot of the writers of the, you know, Founding Fathers were, you could argue, on the left-hand bow. So think about this, gang. So what we've done then is we have taken some imprinted. This is important because music puts you in a disarmed, mentally, disarmed state akin to hypnosis and remember hypnosis has to do with going to sleep <laughs> it's whether the word hypnotic hypnos Greek it means to fall asleep so we would come into church and we would play music that would put us in a certain state and then repetitively now now we're open now we're singing out of the context of we are glorifying the Lord, we are giving ourselves, we are worshiping you, we are glorifying you, we are honoring you. All of these were ancient archaic monarchy structures and things that went on. But what we're doing now is we're taking modern people and we are we are creating. So now we're singing a song. We're vibrating a tune, we're vibrating a pattern, we're literally vibrating a pattern into our spiritual self and into our subconscious that is surrendering and giving ourselves over to this pattern that was constructed thousands and thousands of years ago, really to promote the monarchy. Now, how do we know this? Because who wrote the Bible? Yeah, okay, so Joyce says, oh, my gosh, I was going to ask you about worship music, what kind of state it put me in when I felt that energy. So, yeah, so we're opening up to it, and then we're feeling the energy of it, right? We're feeling the energy of the presence. Really what we're doing is that thought current that has been going for millennia And collectively we just, we just start going down that path and down that road. This is, this is deconstruction on steroids, right? So watch the programming. So we're doing that. We're being told to live our life by a book, which we're, I'm going to come to in a minute. We're being told to live our life by a book. Which has monarch. We're being told that we are enemies of the state, that we were born in sin, that we were born bad, that we are separated from God, that we have to change, fix, do something to become acceptable, acceptable to God, to become an acceptable citizen in this monarchy kingdom. Here's how you have to act. And so then we have you come and pray a prayer where you surrender your life. You give your life to the Lord, to the Lord. And then you start going to, you know, the question is, okay, what now? Well, come to church, read your Bible. Don't go by your experiences. Go by what the scripture says. Don't go by science or logic. Go by what the scripture says. Because this is the word of the king. And you got masses of people that are doing that. So let's come back to the book. How did we get the Bible? Um, I hate to disappoint people. Maybe there was a real Moses who was on Mount Sinai, and God came down on a fire and talked to him, and he wrote it on tablets. Maybe there was a real Exodus. And then maybe he passed that down by oral tradition for centuries. And maybe that was the foundation of what God wanted. Because he chose the Jewish people and then they preserved his writings and preserved his seed until the Messiah could come. Thousands and thousands of years after humanity had been created. Thousands and thousands of years after the fall. But Messiah finally comes so he can die and save us from our sins. Maybe that's that's the narrative we're given, right? And this is the one God who's got over all the earth. But when you look at the evidence, please realize nobody kept better records in the ancient world. You, you had two empires that kept really good records. You had the Sumerian Empire, which... It's kind of like the Persian Empire. And then you had the Egyptians who kept good historical records. And there's nothing in the historical records of the Egyptians that matches anything close to Hebrew slaves or Moses or an exodus or their army drowning in the sea. Think about that. If the army drowned in the sea, how big a deal that would have been. So there, there's nothing there about that. There is no archaeological evidence for the Egyptian army drowning in the Red Sea. There is no archaeological evidence for Jewish Egyptian slaves, like what we're told. There is no archaeological evidence for millions of Jews going through the desert for 40 years. There is no archaeological evidence or record uh, in fact, the archaeological evidence in Jericho, um, there was no walls. There were no walls that came down. It wasn't even a walled city. It was a relatively insignificant city at that time. No mass graves. No evidence of genocide. So what I'm saying is the entire story can not only not be supported and validated by uh, history and archaeology, It Historyology contradicts it. Now, you can say that's all fake news designed to prevent, you know, suppress the Christian voice and whatever. And I understand the argument, but let's come back then to what we do know, what we can agree upon. The scriptures were put together, I want to say about 800 B.C., around the time of King Josiah. Now, this can all be historically verified. You had the two kingdoms. You had the ten tribes of Israel, and you had Judah and Benjamin. And they were competing empires. They had competing temples. They had competing systems. They had competing ideas of worship. And at the end of the day, Judah and Benjamin One out, not necessarily because they were stronger, more powerful than the other 10 tribes, but because the other 10 tribes were destroyed by, I want to say, the Assyrians. So they're putting together a book. And they're wanting and they're centralizing religious power in Jerusalem. So here's what Josiah did according to the biblical narrative. Now, remember, it's his scribes that are writing it. He finds the book of the law, which had been hidden. In the temple and it, they think it's the book of Deuteronomy it talks about blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. And he goes out throughout the land and he tears down altars and he destroys, you know, the things that are on the high places. And he says you have to serve one God. And you have to come up to Jerusalem and to the temple, which was the capital, and celebrate the feasts there. Like it is a historical power grab, right? And then give your life to this one God and the law that he has for us as the people and to serve as a nation under this one God, Yahweh. And you'll be blessed and you'll live in the land. The only problem was after the revival of Josiah. Now, this is that that's the narrative in the Bible that Josiah gives. Right. But there's a there's a competing narrative that's hidden in the scriptures. And I don't know the scripture references, but there were groups. So, so, so there were groups that contended with that and thought what Josiah did was evil. He thought he desecrated the temple when he pulled the stuff out of the temple. They thought that he desecrated, and, and one of the altars that he destroyed was like at Bethel. So like he desecrated Jacob's altar and he desecrated. So, so what's happening is you have these high places and these altars and all this stuff where people are doing their own devotion and worship. And then it gets wiped out and centralized by the government. You get this monarchial God that's given to you that then's carried on into the New Testament. I'm spending way too much time on that. Um. <clears throat> I spend way, way, way too much time on that, but here's the interesting thing. Josiah caused the kind of revival that right-wing evangelicals want to see in America. Totally. In Israel, I mean, there's, there's great comparisons. Like everybody came, they said, okay, we're going to, we're going to keep the feast. We're going to follow the law. We're going to repent. We're going to destroy our idols. We're going to worship the one God, Yahweh. And then the Babylonians come in and destroy the temple anyway, take them captive anyway, take them into Babylon anyway, Josiah dies in battle. So there was a a competing narrative that you see portions of in Jeremiah and Isaiah especially, where the people were talking about the lying uh, pen of the scribes, well the lying pen of the scribes are the same scribes that are writing down the scriptures that we say are inerrant so in the bible which is without error it talks about the lying pen of the scribes writing the bible there's another group that said it it was because Josiah got rid of the divine feminine with the Asherah and uh the 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 trees because the trees were considered to be this divine feminine thing it was because of those things that destruction came it was because of those things that they were left defenseless so you have these two competing narratives but the one that won the one that had the power to enforce its own narrative was the government right was the king was jerusalem so so if you look at it if you really study it if you want to take time to study it there was a lot of political motivation in the form of control And power that motivated the promotion of the scriptures within Israel to begin with. That's the story of the Old Testament. So perhaps Jesus came really as a left-hand path person to completely upset that narrative. A king who gets crucified. Right? Because the narrative of the power structures would be, they don't want you finding your inner demon, your inner daemon, your divine fire. They don't want you self-actualizing that. You're harder to control if you are intuitive and psychic. You're harder to control if you're magic, if you can create magic, if you can create change in the world according to your will. Right? So what I'm saying is, is what if everything's upside down? What if it's the exact opposite of what we've thought? What if this devoting ourselves and giving ourselves, because here's where we're at in Christianity, right? Devoting ourselves, giving ourselves up, giving our power over, giving responsibility for our lives over to something else, to sky God, to sky God who sits on the throne. Worshipping Sky God, exalting Sky God, right? And all we're doing is taking this pattern of mapping where the map of control that existed and dominance and domination that existed within the monarchical system of Judah is now mapped onto the spiritual world. That's a little bit convenient, isn't it? I mean, it's just a little bit convenient that God set up his system the same way humanity set up an oppressive system to oppress the masses and to get the sheep to go along, right? It's a little bit too convenient, isn't it? But yet we think that's eternal reality. And we think when we're worshiping that, that we're really worshiping the one God. And then we're giving away responsibility for our lives because we're, well, I guess it just wasn't God's will. We're giving away accountability to ourselves and to our future selves Because who knows what God's plan is going to be. And I'm not denying the reality that in all of this consciousness that our creator is a loving, that that source energy is an unconditional loving energy. I think it's obvious that it's an unconditionally loving energy. I think it's obvious that we have free will and not coercion. I think that explains actually the evil that is in the world and the suffering that's in the world to a large degree because it is the result of this dangerous sort of freedom of expression that the divine has allowed. And the fact that the divine can love even the most evil, quote-unquote, even the most destructive soul or person or entity is an aspect of that. And that's what the Kabbalion teaches. So, So what if the demon state, the demon fire, is the divine spark that is within us that when we were experiencing what we call the power of God when we were experiencing the gifts of spirit it was the lighting the lighting up the energizing of that inner daemon that that inner fire That inner divine energy, that inner divine spark, the real you that wants to be expressed, the genius you. Think about it as your genius state, (laughs) right? Rising up and manifesting according to your divine will. And then realizing that I've got to manage my energies, my various different masks and roles and identities, my thoughts and my feelings my passions, my body, that I'm building this temple with my thoughts, that I'm building this temple with my feelings, that I'm building this temple with my actions, that I'm building this temple that is allowing this divine fire to shine forth through me. And what if that's the pathway to real freedom and real expression? What if that's the movement of evolution and what if what we thought was bringing the kingdom of heaven to the earth was actually the control system that was designed to keep us going in the flow of a certain mentation so that we in the process, see, in the process of Israel giving away their power to Yahweh, they were giving away their power to Jerusalem. They were giving away their power to the king. In the process of making Jesus Christ the Lord of our life, because the church is the body of Christ on the earth, how convenient is that, right? So now we're giving our time, talent, treasure, whatever, our devotion, and it's going up the line to those that really... Seek to be empowered. Um, so let's look at, at some of these comments. Does, does this make sense to you? Uh, just go up a little bit. Christina Osan says, thank you for being the voice that needs to be heard. Thanks, Christina. Dave says, listening to an audiobook book called Alphabet Versus the Goddess, I highly recommend it explores the bad fruit of defying words. Ginger says, as you are helping people deconstruct the beliefs and ideologies they were brought up with, I am reminded of the very first words in class of my Old Testament professor at United Theological Seminary. There are many stories of battles in the Old Testament, most of which never actually happened. (laughs) Thanks, Ginger, for validating what I was saying there. Um, Melissa says, your lives are so good. I'm tuning in. While driving home from work, then I'll go back later and listen to the whole thing. Thank you, Melissa. I appreciate that. Um, Laura Lauren Daryl says, Christianity, as it is now, has been proven to make no real change in anyone's lives. Only surface change for those who fully buy into the system, but that is only short-lived. Those fully devoted ones who fully dive in, discover the shallow bottom of the system. It's true. All right, guys. Hope that was helpful. Um, Introduced a lot of different concepts, but I wanted to just kind of keep hammering away at this idea of the left-hand path and this idea of your own liberation, self-actualization as as an eternal divine being um, who is having a human experience. Uh, I mean, isn't it better to think that you are self-sustained by the divine because you're an expression of the divine. That wants full expression in your life, that wants full experience in your life, that wants you to have the freedom to make choices, even if those choices go against religious norms or societal norms or whatever the case may be. Or learning to create As you're growing along, as you're growing along in this process of evolution, that may cause you to have, you know, once you die, perhaps death is merely what we're witnessing with death is we're witnessing the promotion to the next level, the elevation to the next level that maybe that's what physical death is. But like, isn't it better to isn't it healthier to think along those lines? Than to be at the mercy of an all-powerful God who clearly isn't all good, or we wouldn't have some of the terrible things that we have on the planet, right? And hope that you got it right, that you got the, you prayed the prayer right, that you got baptized right, that you lived right or whatever, so that you can be allowed into His kingdom and then sit around his throne and worship him all day. I mean, that's kind of the Christian idea. And then we think about our relatives and stuff like where did they go? Where did they spend eternity? We think about um, people whose lives were cut short. But what if everything is mental and mind and sort of all this game that we're playing as god in the realm of polarity and experience that we are a self-sustaining divine spark who is ultimately destined to the full expression of that divinity which we are like which which one seems more loving and more divine healthier and which one seems more like a play um so what i'm saying is is that this this idea that i'm presenting of this left-hand pathway, this left-hand path approach of your inner daemon, of your divine spark, of the all being mental, um, of this evolutionary pathway, of not devoting yourself—I mean—I mean—I think that's really profound when you think about. We demonize polytheism. When polytheists were recognizing the energies and consciousnesses and currents, calm thought currents of the universe, giving them a deific mass, giving them a form and a name, and then making offerings to it for certain benefits, but not devoting and dedicating their entire life and entire self, which is what we're asked to do in not just Christian religion, but even Hindu paths of devotion um, it's, it's, it's all the same thing. It's um, anyway, you get it. All right. I'm going to shut it down. I'm going to try and get some rest. Uh, I hope this was okay today. Uh, I hope it benefited you. Love you guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, read a couple, just a couple more comments. Tender Anna heart says, yes, it is letting go of what you were told, finding out so much more to being who we were born to be. Shannon says, nice, came to these conclusions by divine union. Very cool. You can't get it wrong. Amen. The Christian life sounds like it gets worse and worse. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, the more I sit back and look at it, the more I'm just like, wow, this is such a mind screw. Um, so, hey, Mariana, thank you. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Mary. Um, Thanks, guys, for watching and tuning in. And if you're watching by replay, thanks for watching. Um, I'll be back with you probably next week. And then, like I said, you know, in a couple of weeks, things are really going to slow down for me. So I'm getting a plan together on how I want to proceed and go forward. But I want to, you know, I've, I've taken the last year and really spent in-depth time um, changing myself and working with a lot of different things in terms of waking this divine spark and so there's lots that i want to share that i haven't released yet um that i want to release in classes so stay tuned i'll get you more information on that uh can the dichotomy of the left-hand path and right hand path hold one chad that is a great question um Because I do think the right-hand path can be a legitimate path when done, you know, in a mystical sense that does lead to partaking in the divine nature or apotheosis. Um, I don't know, man. We'll have to meditate on that. You'll have to share your thoughts with me on that. Uh, Ben says, you devote your life. To obedience to a God and you must continue timelessly singing <laughs> his praises forever. I mean, think about that, right? Uh Chad, you're welcome. All right. You guys have a great day.